simply picking up an exposition or a teaching that we started probably six months ago now in the book of Philippians, and we're um, closing it down, possibly over the next several weeks, um, possibly over the next several weeks, but um, probably, probably over the next several weeks. Um, it's been just a treasure um, to my own heart, and I hope and pray that it has been a treasure to those that have been here, um, and that God has worked to make you more like His Son through it, and I pray today the same um, with this message out of Philippians 4, particularly verses 8 and 9. But if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll go to the Lord in prayer once again to ask His blessing upon the reading and the teaching. Um, but we're going to pick up our reading um, to give you the full context of this passage in verse number 1. We'll end in verse 9. We read these words by the Apostle Paul in the Spirit of God. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue or if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Pray with me. Once again, Father, we come to you to pray, um, because in some sense we recognize that it is our breath. Father, it is necessary to the work. The necessary means that you've provided, Father, that you truly act through. And Father, it is a representation of our desires, and I pray that it is our utmost desire this morning to hear from heaven from God himself, Father. So we come to you now in this moment to simply ask that. We say amen to all the other prayers that our brothers have prayed, um, Father, and come to you specifically now to ask you to add a blessing to the reading of your word, Father. Uh, may you already have begun your work in us um, simply um, through the public proclamation and reading of the text. Uh, we know that you can do more with that by the power of your spirit and the men can do throughout generations in their own strength. So, Father, uh, we beg and plead with you now and by the power of your Son, and that you would do a work in us, Father, that can only be explained, a transformation that could only be explained by God himself. Uh, Father, we pray that in the oldest to the littlest. Pray that, Father, even in my own heart, as I bring the text, and that you would do a fresh work in me, Father, as you, as you proclaim the, the message of Christ, even to my own heart. Father, um, we need you to accomplish this because we can't accomplish it in and of ourselves. We simply pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful, in the giving, but also faithful in the receiving, and that you would do, Father, eternal things as a result of it. Father, we revel in, in the majesty and the glory and the power of an almighty God today, that he is able to do um, what we cannot do, and that he's able to take um, our finite activity, Father, in our endeavors, and to accomplish infinite and eternal things. 
And that's what we're trusting you to do now. So, Father, go with us the next hour. Stay our minds and accomplish eternal things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. What we have before us in these two verses, as I said, verses 8 and 9, and the Apostle Paul begins with these words as he begins to close down the letter. I mean, what we have before you this morning really is a, an extremely simple message. Um, I mean, it is probably one of the simplest messages um, throughout the entire book of Philippians and possibly even the entire Bible. Um, it's a simple message of think, do, and it'll be a blessing in your life. We may, we may title it something like, Listen, Learn, and Labor for the Lord, and the Lord will bless. Particularly bless your life with His presence. But as simple as that sounds, and it's easy to articulate, um, it's easy, it doesn't seem all that extremely profound in some sense. Yet in all reality, um, it appears just biblically speaking, and anecdotally, practically speaking, from a pastoral and a personal level, this seems to be, while simple, one of the most difficult things that we struggle with, given the remaining sin in our lives. There just seems to be such a gap in most Christians between our thought life, and maybe even more here, maybe even more in a theologically driven church, um, I struggle with week to week to even think I can present to some of you something that you've not heard, something that you've not seen, something that someone has not articulated um, in a more eloquent way or a more faithful way, the same truths that you've been hearing for 40 years. The danger is, is that 40 years of continued doctrine being laid upon your conscience still lies there. Because I do know that it is in my life from time to time. Things that I've heard over and over again, and there seems to be this somewhat disconnect, and we live week in and week out with anxieties and with um, worries and ever guilt-laden, um, because uh, there just seems to be some things that we know that we ought to do, yet we, we do not. Um, why? Because sin is a reality even in the life of a Christian, Right? We, yes, have been perfected in Christ through His work even now such that we are appropriating, we have received and are the, the present inheritors of the most tremendous blessings in heavenly places. Like we are seated with Him now. Yet, at the same time, Paul is clear in Romans chapter 7 and you're probably clear in your prayers on a daily basis. Father, um, I know what the Son has accomplished. I know what the law... Um, provokes me to do. I know what you saved me for. I know what blessings I have. Um, yet I struggle to do the things that I know to do. That we are a people who are being sanctified. And thus there are these ever-present realities in which we struggle one from another. And if we're not careful, we'll actually fall, not in the middle of faithful yearning after Christ and being pulled in that direction and being conformed into His image, but even fall into the extreme ditches, I think, that we see in today's, um, even within today's uh, Christian church. Culturally, um, possibly, 
Uh, it's been fed into the church because it is prevalent in the culture. Um, and that is the reality of some, some sense of anti-intellectualism on one end and then over-intellectualization on the other. What I mean by that is, is that there is in some sense, even among the Christian church, this concept of nominal Christianity such that um, that theology is something of a professional type of um, a professional type of position, such that it's given over to a certain type of men. And I shouldn't really have to think. I'm just a doer. I'm just a doer. There's somewhat of an intellectual laziness and aversion to deep and focused thinking. In vain, much like our culture, who seeks instant gratification, many Christians today, and I would say even true Christians, um, are on the lookout for something quick, something easy some spiritual meal that's kind of like a microwavable dinner. But the reality is, is that just as little um, health that that gives us to our bodies, um, little health does it often bring to give you a 20-minute homily um, without much to ever actually think about, without taxing the mind. And the moment that you begin to require anything, of someone to quiet themselves, gird up the loins of their minds, examine their hearts, evaluate, consider a reality that is somewhat deep in thinking, they check out. They're done. Um, it's almost as if going deep into the truth of God's Word is for an elite group of Christians and that we call pastor or evangelist or missionary. And the common man doesn't necessarily need to think. He doesn't need to read. He doesn't need to study. I think this is just... Paramount. I do. I do. And I think that it's, it's, it's representative in our culture, church culture, um, as well as the culture um, uh, that I came from. You know, it, it amazes me as I look back and think that every single young man that showed any interest in studying the Bible, reading it, it is almost as if he was pegged, he's going to go to seminary and be a Bible student. Probably a pastor, a missionary. Uh, when in all reality... Shouldn't that be required of every man? Isn't that just normal Christian life? Hasn't Jesus saved all of us and placed within us a desire for the sincere milk of the Word? And that while we may be babes for a time, we're to grow up into toddlers, eventually teenagers, to be fathers, eventually to raise our children and to be examples, um, not, not only in mouth, but also in model. Um, and we, we need to guard against that. But at the same time, there's this... There's this um, there's this concept, this danger on the other end that I think probably we are as much, if not more, uh, privy to, and that is the concept of over-intellectualization. Or maybe we think too much. We, um, we think too much, that, that, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's a great thing to think. I just made that argument. What I mean is, is that we think and do not do. That there is this sense in which you know, young men are ascending to the pastorate role with some concept that I'm going to sit in an ivory tower at the church office for 40 to 50 hours a week and just you know, be washed over with, with the Puritans. Um, with, with little activity at home, actually discipling their children, with little activity in ministry, actually carrying out those, such that what the church has in a man is a, is a, is a professor to model after, and they look to him, and they actually don't know how to model anything after him at all. 
They don't know how to be a godly father. They don't know how to work. They don't know how to labor. Um, they don't know how to do this. There's just a disconnect. There's a, somewhat of an elite status and a professor um, in him. Yet the common man, the blue-collar man, the man who's just trying to work day to day, week to week, be faithful in the home, um, has little example of how to actually accomplish that because his pastor is so far removed from the reality of, of actual Christian living. Um, and he's somewhat of in a think tank. And we need to guard against both. We need to find ourselves somewhere in the middle. That we cannot be either intellectually lazy, nor can we at the same time be practically lazy. We can't abandon thinking for doing, nor can we abandon doing because I'm, I'm just more of a thinker. Now, the scriptures are clear, and the Christian life is designed to be comprised of both realities. These are actually inseparable in some reality, some sense. These spiritual duties, both thinking and doing, um, are inseparable because while we can distinguish these in our minds and maybe even in practice, there is a sense in which you cannot separate them, that, that one actually gives rise to the other. That Paul is going to argue here, and this Christian life is going to be designed like this, and the, the Old Testament New Testament, the Bible as a whole, um, there's going to be this underlying premise that you're going to find throughout that right actions are actually the product of right thinking. That you shouldn't just do blindly, nor should you just sit in a think tank somewhere all day and think that because you have a right knowledge um, that you're somewhat more spiritual than others. Because if that's the case, then we ought to have uh, Pharisees at our model today um, and not the disciples. One commentator says, right thoughts are the mother of right actions. They give birth to them in some sense. As a mother gives birth to a child, um, the, the, the product of right thinking, appropriate thinking, a proper consideration of God's truth, it should result in proper, diligent activity. Another, another, another Christian writes these words, he says, thoughts are the weaving looms like a weaver, the weaving looms in, in the wonderful machinery of the soul. They run day and night weaving the garments that the soul wears. If you'll care for your thoughts, he says, the thoughts will mold character reflexively and unconsciously. And what he's arguing there is, is that as you put thoughts in your mind, actually as you, as you put data, content, you take the truth of God's Word into your mind, if it is appropriately received, um, it will actually somewhat look at the heart, as Matthew 13 says, Right? That is, is this soil, and as the seed goes in, the, the soil will enliven um, the, the, the seed. Life will be brought forth, and fruit will culminate as a result of it, even when you don't even think about it. So you're going to think about it. You're going you're to plant those thoughts in your mind. They're going to change and transform your affections, which are going to provoke your will to the activity that is honoring to God. That's the idea. So we're not simply dealing with a couple... Uh, and when you come to this portion of the text, what we're not dealing with is just a simple... Uh, I want you to look at 8 and 9 like this. We're not just dealing with a few more commands. So what we've done up to this point is we've actually looked at verses 2 through 7 almost as an outworking of verse number 1, stand fast. And there's then these rapid-fire commands. Have joy. Rejoice always. Let your gentle be known. Be anxious for nothing. And there's just been this stacking of command upon command upon command. 
Uh, and, and what you could do is actually look at this next as just more commands. And it is more commands, but at the same time, you could almost, you could almost draw a picture. And I almost did this in my own Bible. Uh, I hope you don't think I'm blasphemous for writing my Bible, but I take notes. And I almost like, just drew a line across between 7 and 8 and drew a tree coming out of 8 and with fruit on it into verses 6, 7, 8, that, that, that or 6 and 7, 5, 4, 3, and 2. Because what you have is, is that actually 2 through 7 is the fruit of the activity of the seed being planted in the soul of a man. That actually 8 and 9 could be a summation of how to attain verses 2 through 7, or verses 1 through 7. You say, how in the world will I stand fast? How will I have the joy of Christ? How will I love my brethren to have unity of soul? How will my gentleness be made known? How will I be anxious for nothing? How do I receive the peace of God? Well, brothers, you must think about it. You must not only think about it, but that thinking will produce in you some reality, some fruit, and that fruit is exemplified in verses 1 through 7. You will stand fast. So that when we come to this, uh, these two verses, actually what we see is somewhat of a how-to, a summation, a foundation of the reality of the rest. You can't divorce these uh, from the previous. That the spiritually stable Christian will give himself to deep and disciplined thought, as well as diligent application and practice of the truths that he claims to know. And the fruit of it will be what we see previously. If he does this, he'll live a life that is blessed by God because God will be present with him. And we see that promise in verse number 9, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, very simply, just three things. Uh, number one, you're going to see a call to think. Uh, number two... You're going to see a call to do. Number three, you're going to see the blessing of that obedience. Verse number eight, you see a call to think. You see a call to think. Boys and girls, if there was a word within verse number eight that we could hang the entire verse on, we may even call it a key, right? If you're going to open up a door, you need a key to open that door up. Um, the key to verse number eight would be the word towards the end, um, where you read meditate. If you have a New King James, it's going to say meditate. That's going to unlock the rest of the verse. Meditate. You may have a translation that says think. I want to say the NAS actually says dwell, dwell upon. Um, that's a wonderful translation. It gives more of a full picture when you take all of them into account, actually what this word means. That when God calls us as Christians to think, um, He calls us to more than just simply rattle a few um, contents of data, a few words and phrases around in our mind. Um, that, that Paul is actually encouraging and commanding, exhorting, warning, and compelling the people at Philippi to think on these things. But when he says think again, um, it's, it's a more in-depth word than just a simple um, data dump into the mind, sending to a certain reality. That if you, the, the, the original word actually comes from the word that we get our English word logic from. Uh, logizomai um, is, is the actual word, and, and I may have just butchered that, and that's fine. Logic is what you're going for. Um, it's a word that, that we derive, uh, again, the, the concept as well of logic from. That it has with it, yes, a basic meaning of thinking, but just like many words, it's one of those that, that to get the full picture, 
Um, it does well to think on the different ways to translate that, that word. Um, that it calls for intentional thinking. It calls for reasoning. It calls for pondering. It calls for meditating. Hence the New King James translation. It calls you to take into account and to consider something. To consider it as true. And also to consider it as to the implications of that reality. For example, one brother writes, the verb think about here means to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, and allow the result and appraisal to influence the way life is to be lived. That it actually it means to consider a reality, to read the text and actually say, boys and girls, what does this mean? And if this means something, then, then, then I am responsible to do something. Right? It'd be like looking at one of your children whom you've raised, 12, 14 years old now, and just saying to them something like, man, the kitchen is dirty. <laughs> right? Um, they have enough within them to recognize that, that means something if dad's saying that, if that mom is saying that. There's implications to that. They don't just cast it off, throw it in and say, well, it is dirty. You know, no, there's something being implied, even just in that indicative statement, that statement of reality and relationship with me long enough knows that dad is implying something. Um, that there is something that is being laid upon you as responsibility. And it is incumbent upon them, and, a, and it would be a blessing to them if they come to the proper conclusion, right? That the relationship even between mom and dad is, is going to be much more of a blessing than if they, they wrestle with it, pass it aside, or even come up to the wrong conclusions. That's the idea. When you come to the Word, when you assess life, uh, when you come to the truth, that, that it's not just something simple to, 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 to pass by or to put into your mind as a memory verse, um, but it is something that every little boy, every little girl, every man, every woman, every child who is a child of God is to assess and to consider what is it that God is speaking to me about and what am I responsible for? Responsible for. Um, you see this all throughout the New Testament. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the same word is used in Romans chapter 6, just as an example. You don't need to turn there. But, but, but it's, it's in the Old King James translation. Um, it's, it's that word that I love. It's even southern in nature, reckon. Um, in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 11, you read this. Likewise also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Reckon, think on this, consider yourself. It's a reality, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You know what Paul is arguing there? Paul is arguing from death, burial, and resurrection, this reality of Christ living a sinless, perfect life, giving His life on Calvary on behalf of sinners like us, and being raised from the dead. And what he is saying, he's saying as a result of that reality, there's some responsibility laid upon you. So reckon yourself, consider yourselves dead. And if you consider yourself dead, to your sin, then you will be alive unto Christ. Therefore, yield your members to righteousness. You see the connection? Godly thinking, proper response, proper consideration leads to action. That if this is true, if everything that God says about Himself is true, if Christ is truly who He says He is, then it is incumbent upon us to act and to do. Therefore, simple application, boys and girls, like we were made to be thinkers. We were made to consider. 
We were not made to be somewhat of blind absorbers of reality. That we as Christians are to be careful thinkers about all things. Uh, Fathers and mothers, it is imperative that you teach your children how to think. It is imperative that you teach them how to consider realities. They will not live nor thrive upon the faith of their father. It will be a model and an example. It will preach truth to them. But at the same time, you must teach them how to think. That Christians, MacArthur says, careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. That we are to think on the realities that God has laid before us. And we are to think. Martin Lloyd-Jones is in a commentary on Matthew 6 talking about the Christian faith. He says the Christian faith is essentially thinking. Jesus makes that argument, Matthew 6, he makes. Jesus says, look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them, and live in a certain way. That we are to be a considerate people, a thinking people, not a blind people. You know, the world looks at the Christian faith as somewhat of an irrational leap into the dark. Something that takes us over, takes over us, that, 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 that takes us over in spite of, of, of thinking, of reasoning. There's this encounter in the spiritual realm that we're just, to, there's this idea that we're just to empty ourselves of all things, just blindly walk. But I think that the Bible is overwhelmingly clear, God is overwhelmingly clear, that, that, that the true Christian faith is to fill our minds with the revelation of God's Word. Primarily, consider it, reflect on it. Draw certain conclusions from it, proper ones. And from that, our lives will be forever changed. And it should be evident to the world as we live out those realities. Just one more text for you. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The spiritual warfare... If you want to be profitable, you want to wield the sword well, and then you must be thinkers. You must bring every thought into captivity, right? You may be saying, what am I to think about? Well, Paul gives us some of that content as well. We're not going to go extremely deep into the realities this morning, but simply give you a kind of a cursory uh, reading and meaning, and then I encourage you to meditate on these things at home, which is actually kind of the command in the text, Right? Um, So what are we to think on? Paul gives us six things that are specific and then two things that are non-specific. And I think in doing that, he's actually just opening up the exhaustive nature of this reality and that it's not actually just tied to these six things. But he's giving us examples. He says, so what am I to think on? What am I to meditate on? What am I to intentionally fill my mind with up and consider? And Paul gives us these six things. Number one, finally, brethren, whatever things are true. Whatever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. And then he says again, exception clause. If I missed anything, if there's anything virtuous that you can think about, anything praiseworthy, think, meditate, dwell, consider these things. You're going to see the connection. The things which you learned, and actually you could translate that, which these things you learned... And received and heard and saw in me, these do. So there's a, there's a, there's a dynamic connection there. Um, that the things that I'm telling you about were actually things you heard in me, saw in me, learned from me, these things do. But quickly, 
What do you mean? Think on what? Think on things that are true. True. Boys and girls, it would be to fulfill this command. God says that you and I are to intentionally make it the habit of our lives to pursue a thought life that is encumbered with thinking about things that are true. Those things which correspond to reality. And again, with every one of these, and what you're going to find is that the correspondent reality is true, right? That if it is positively true that these are the things we are to give ourselves over, then it is equally true that the contrast or the, op- the opposing reality um, that we are to, to pursue to avoid, right? So if you're to think on things that are true, you shouldn't be thinking on things that are lies, false. That you are to give yourself over to those things that are true. And just a little application, this will be one of the most beneficial things in your entire life. If you will learn to cultivate a godly thought life, it will protect you from all of the negative realities of the previous verses. What I mean by that is, is that if you want joy in your life, if you want gentleness to be in character, if you want to rid yourselves of the anxieties of this life overwhelmingly, then it would be beneficial to you to learn to think on things that are true, not on things that are false, not on lies. Some of the greatest people that I've ever encountered with the anxieties of this life have not learned this task. They've given themselves over to a number of things which aren't true. Lies in their life, things that aren't reality, uh, possibilities that could be. They'll fashion a hundred different realities of all the things that people thought or they did or maybe they meant or ascribing motives or this or that. They'll torment themselves day and night on things that that, that simply aren't true. They're possible, but they're not reality. And that if you'll learn to cultivate a life that, that, that loves and values truth such that it will not entertain the lies of men, you'll be a much more effective and equipped saint um, for the work of the ministry wherein he has called you. And this is the call throughout the Old and New Testament. John chapter 17. Sanctify yourselves in the truth. How in the world will we progress in the faith? Jesus says he's going to do it by the truth. You're going to set yourselves apart through the pursuit of truth. Thy word is truth, he says. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That you are to give yourselves over to dwelling upon in your thought life, to the knowledge of, reflection upon, consideration, and the rumination of the Word of God as revealed in Scripture. At the most basic level, what that will do in your life, if you do it well enough and faithful enough, that God will actually cultivate the character of genuineness, truthfulness, Um, in your life. It will become a part of you and it will flow through you. You will value it such that it will change your character and as God communes with you, you will become um, truthful, honest. You will become a certain type of man. See, this is what thinking does. Thinking transforms you by the renewing of your mind. It makes you into certain types of men. This is our goal. All right? 
Your goal is not to simply do the proper activity. Your goal is to be the certain type of man such that in any environment with the principal cultivation of godly character, because you are an honest man, it just flows from you. It comes off the tree. It begins to fall off. Why? Because it's, it's an apple tree. It's what it produces. In the right environment, it, it, it becomes ripe and pleasurable and delightful um, upon its taste in a similar way. Um, what you want to do, what your goal should be, not only in your lives, but in the lives of your children, um, are to be to cultivate this character such that um, in whatever environment are, they are in, they can make the proper judgment because they're honest people. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to say, don't lie to your boss. You don't have to say, don't lie to your wife. You don't have to say, do not deceive anyone. Why? Because this young man is an honest person. And he's guided by principle and character. And that maturity expresses itself in the way that he carries himself. The only way you're going to cultivate that is in obedience to this command. To have a thought life encumbered by the truth. Okay? Not only that, but you want an honorable young man. You want to be an honorable young woman. Um, you want to be noble, lofty, dignified, grave, worthy of respect and reverence. Then think on number two. Things that are noble. Things that are noble. The opposite. You say, what does that mean? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the opposite of that which is frivolous and mundane. Um, this word is often used throughout the pastoral epistles, the speech, the speak of the church, and particularly of those who are more mature in Christ. For example, Titus 2 speaks of older men who are dignified. Um, dignified in all things. And they are to teach that to the younger men. Same with the ladies. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 8. Deacons must be men of dignity. Men of dignity. It, it, it comes from the word where we get our word gravitas from. That these are men who are serious men. They are men with gravity. They are men in whom have earned and commanded respect simply because of their lives. They don't have to demand it with their lips. They don't have to come in and say, bow down before me. No one should ever do that, of course. But there is a certain type of man or a certain type of woman who have carried themselves in such a way that they have earned the respect of God's people simply by the example and the life that they, that they have. Uh, they know what to be serious about and they know what not to. It's not to say that this is a man who is just, you know, just uh, sour lemons all the time. It's not as if he doesn't know how to laugh or to have joy. But he is a certain type of man that understands when to be serious and when not. You know? And what we have overwhelmingly today in our culture, as well as in the church, are men who are just constantly given over to things that are, that are just flippant. Um, they don't matter. They have no value. You know? You talk to somebody and you never get into a serious conversation. Um, they make light and jokes about everything in this world. Right? Because they think that that'll be you know, something that will gain them um, acceptance from others or affirmation from other men. I will be well-liked. You don't need to be well-liked men. You need to be well-respected. You need to carry yourself in such a way in which the other men in this church see that example, they see that life, and they know this is a man that walks with God. He's a man that carries himself well. He's a man that is communed with the Lord. And I want to follow that type of man. 
He knows when to speak. He knows when not to. He knows what to take serious and he knows what to. His mind is not given over to frivolous things. One, one way you'll know that this is the type of man to follow is the type of man that is because of what he will give his time to. Right? His mind won't be filled with trivial things um, that don't matter. See, the man who understands the gravity and the weight of the Christian life and his accountability to God recognizes that I only have a limited amount of time. And you'll see his life in trajectory and directed toward those things that matter. Look at his life. Watch him. Think about the things that he talks about or she talks about. This is of the women, the ladies as well. They understand what the value of a day is. And they understand how much that day weighs and their actions weighs in the light of eternity. Therefore, um, while they could give themselves over to frivolous things, seemingly neutral things, they won't do it. Why? Because those things won't add up in a time and eternity. Therefore, they're willing to lay aside those things which don't really matter. They may not be inherently evil, but they don't have enough time to give over to that and things that actually matter. You know, I, I can't go out and do that. Like my children matter too much. I've got to disciple them. You know, my wife is too important to me um, to give myself over to things that may be enjoyable, yet at the same time, um, they're not profitable. You know, that, that, that you'll see a man making decisions not between the good and the bad, but between what is good and best. And this type of man, I mean, he's, he's not a legalist. He's not going to draw lines for other people, but he's going to recognize in his own heart, in his own life, in his own family, in his own church, that there are certain things that I must give myself over to, and I'm limited in my scope of practice. Therefore, I'm going to give myself over to the things that matter. The things that matter. He's going to fill his mind with things that matter. He's going to fill his hands. She's going to fill her hands with things that matter. You want to be that type of man? Then begin by giving your thought life over to things that actually matter. You know, the world doesn't do this. They don't encourage that. Um, entertainment is just the amusement. You, know, you do know what amusement means, right? If you go back to the Latin, a muse. Muse means to think, a means negative. That, that amusement gives, yes, it's, it's not inherently evil. And it's good at times. To, to, to lose yourself in that. But it must be measured appropriately. If you're not careful, you'll fall into the pattern of the world and give yourselves over to the entertainment and amusement, um, not considering things that actually matter. Therefore, those men are men who do nothing that matter. I'll go ahead and mark it down. You have somebody who's overwhelmingly given to the entertainment industry of the world. That is what they think about, watch all the time. Those are men who will not do anything for the glory of God. Nine times out of ten. There's always exceptions. But men who we still remember, men whom we model, women whom we uh, encourage our, 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 our little girls and our wives to, to, to model after are those who have a sense of gravitas. And to have a sense of gravitas in your life, to be that type of man, you must first control your thought life and fill it actually with things that matter. Things that matter. Number three, right things. Right things. Whatever things are just, he says. It's the same word that's used for righteousness. The righteousness and justice of Christ. Um, it deals with that, those things which line up with God's standard, right and wrong. You're to fix your mind on those things. In other words, and that which reflects your desire and efforts to give to God and to man, that which is their due in every relationship of life, right? 
Like you are a man that is, that is genuinely just and righteous. You want to give every man his due. Why? Because God's designed it that way. You say, how do I do that? How, am I, how do I become that type of man? Give yourself over to a righteous thought life. Think on things which are right, which are good, which are just. Take the Old Testament. Like a lawyer, study case law. Wrestle with his judgments. Read his commands. Learn of his ways. Study history. Take his precepts. Apply them to life. Think on these things. It would be a profitable endeavor. Number four, pure. Think on things that are pure, men. Think on things that are pure, ladies. Purity speaks of holiness. It speaks of integrity. It speaks of those things which are not tainted by evil. It's used in 1 Peter 3 and verse 2. It's used in 1 Timothy 5 and 22. Um, where Paul encourages them not to enter into sin by laying on hands of anyone hastily, but to keep themselves pure. Um, it speaks of being um, morally upright, innocent, free from guilt and blemish, free from defilement, not stained by the debauchery of the world. Overwhelmingly, this is going to be seen as, seen as negative, received as negative. Why? Because if you're to give yourselves over to pure things, um, again, the opposite is true. You're not to fill your minds with those things that are impure. Um, and there's a lot that can be said on that. Number five, lovely. Lovely. Um, those things which provoke love. Those things which are toward, the, the, the word deliberate towards love. That promotes love. That elicits love. First Corinthians 13. Meditate on that. Give your mind over to that. What is true love? Things that, that, that will call forth, inspire, invoke love. Things that are pleasing, amiable, and lovely. Number six, of good report. Literally admirable, spoken well of. Give yourself over to think of things that are well respected, spoken well of, admirable among the church. And again, we're picking up speed here. But that's in part because you're to meditate on these things. And then he goes on and gives two general concessions. And says, if there's anything else, anything of virtue or praiseworthy that you've determined, give your thought life over to those things. And in that, as well as the entire verse, what you see is somewhat of an exhaustive um, comprehensiveness to all of life. Right? Actually, in the original, you see that same word whatsoever or whatever six different times or five different times. It, you could, you know, if it wasn't there, you could just translate whatever things are true, things are noble, things are just, things are lovely. Um, for whatever reason, the Apostle Paul desires for you to focus in on every single one. And that term whatsoever opens up a panoply of just endless possibilities. He doesn't go in and say what things are actually noble. He doesn't say, go in and say what things are actually just. Um, he gives us the definition and then he says, whatever you find within that category, think on it. In essence, it's endless. It's a principle. He's not drawing black and white legalistic type of lines. He's saying that if you understand this principle, anything that you find within that category, think on those things. And there's, 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 there is wisdom no doubt, in that. So what's the application? Application, brothers and sisters, think on these things. Make it the attitude and pursuit of your life to gather up 
Uh, day in and day out, wake up and lie down in the midst of the way. Make it to where you are giving yourself over to these things. This will inevitably mean that there are some things you will not be able to give yourself over to. It is a call to sacrifice. It is the call to understand what matters. It is a call of intentionality to pursue these things as a matter of conscience and command. And at the same time, it will be one of the most freeing things that you'll ever have experienced in your life. Why? Because you will not be encumbered by the, um, the realities of the opposite, right? I think if I talk to anybody, I talk to somebody throughout the week, I just don't know, you know, overwhelmingly everyone is just, I mean, again, as a, as a general consensus, just, it seems that everyone is just heavy laden with the difficulties of the world. The decline of the nation, you know, the, the depressing nature of the culture, so forth, or they're, they're thinking on their own lack of virtue. Um, they're, they're beating themselves up. They're morbidly introspective. Or even within the church, looking at, you know, things that are just, just focusing their mind on everything that's going wrong and not necessarily what's going on right. And, and sometimes there's a necessity to think on things that are wrong. Why? Because those things are true. Yet at the same time, in the pursuit of correcting those things, we're to have our minds on these things, not on all of the negative things. And it will guard you from some of the greatest anxieties um, and worries in your life. And thus incapacitating you and paralyzing you from the actual gospel work. So think on these things. Um, number two, do. Do. Not only think, but do. Right? This is a summons in verse number nine to do. He says that the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. It's a simple word. But it is packed with meaning. And again, there's just a connection there. These things. It's almost as if you could say, if they would have stopped at verse number 8, Paul's having a discussion with them, and they're saying, you know, I got, what are these things, Paul? And then he would say, well, these are the same things you learned from me. It's not something new. It's, this isn't anomalous. I mean, it's not, it's not something that's, that's unique. He's saying, in some sense, there's two means by which you'll know the reality of those things that are true, noble, just, lovely, of good report, praiseworthy, virtuous. You know why? Because that's what I taught you, men. You know, these, which these things you learned and received and heard um, in me. That, that Paul was not just a hearer of the word, but he was also a doer as well. And I could just, you know, James chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, encourage you to read that. That's the exhortation, right? The exhortation is, is that men, women, ladies, boys and girls, if you're a child of God, then God calls you not only to think, but He also calls you to action. John 13, 13, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That there is a blessing tied with building your house, Matthew 7, 24, upon the rock. I love this quote by Thomas Brooks. He says, Know that if not the knowing, know, know that it is not the knowing or the talking nor the reading man, but the doing man, that at last will be found the happiest man. And I have found that to be so true. That in a in a living within a body and a mind that has been constructed with theology and doctrine that is that is just overwhelming at times. Just the realities. My most condemning days are those days which I do nothing. 
Why? Because I know better. Right? I've just been ruined by enough theology and doctrine and just the revelation of God in His presence and His Word to know that there is something more for me. These are the most miserable of men. These men who know yet do not do. And yet... There is just the happiest of men who know very little, but what they do know has so impacted their lives that they've given their lives over to doing what they know. You know, not an academic, not a theologian, not a great professor, but God has so arrested their heart and soul with the knowledge of Christ that in every area that they can, and they're utilizing that knowledge for His glory and for the good of those that are around them, just sacrificing self. And you know, this church would be would it would be more profitable for men like that with men with with ten men like that than one theologian in his ivory tower. You know. And that's not to say that knowledge is bad. Not to say that it's negative. It is necessary. We're to be thinkers. But every piece of knowledge we should recognize lays upon a man a responsibility, a woman a responsibility to act in accordance with that. So, so consider it. How will we know, Paul? This is what I've taught you. First means. The first means of, of, of fulfilling this command um, is to recognize that um, the, so, so the first means of implementing godly practice, we'd say, is to appropriate godly instruction. It's very simple. Listen. 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 Put yourself in the way of godly instruction. Whether it's reading your Bible, whether it's listening to sermons, whether it's in church life, whether it's here or there, whether it's just in godly example. To fulfill this command, boys and girls, you must know what God says. You must know what He requires. You must consider it. If you're having difficulty, go to someone whom you trust. Your mother, your father, your pastor. Um, a godly example and ask them, what does this mean? Um, that, that, that Paul is laying upon them responsibility. Why? Because this is what they've heard. Yet, but know this, that the more you hear, the more you're responsible for. And Paul was not afraid just to teach them doctrine. He also taught them Christian life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 1, um, Paul finally exhorts them um, that it was the will of God for their sanctification. That it wasn't just high and lofty theological truths. Paul actually desired to bring it down low to, to the feet in which he would encourage godly practice. Number two, the second means of implementing godly practice. See, how do I do this? First, you know, be teachable. Listen well. Listen, you know. Um, to God's Word. Know what it says. Number two, godly examples. Uh, verse number nine, the things which you learned and received. And number two, heard and saw in me. Most Christians throughout the ages have looked at that like two couplets. You could put like a parenthesis around or lines around learned and received and then heard and saw. Heard and saw in me. Paul says, if you want to know what things are true, what things are noble, what things are just, what things are pure, what things are lovely, what things are a good report, you want to know what's been virtuous and praiseworthy, then look at me. Isn't that one of the most scariest statements in all of the Scripture? I mean, as a man, how many of you can confidently say, look at me? You want to see what God requires? I'm here. You know? Um... But Paul has a certain amount of confidence. It's this same Paul 
who in just a previous chapter balanced these realities well, right? His, his lack of perfectness, his, 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 his reality that he is not sinless, yet at the same time, the reality that God has made and created and put in him a model for the church. Thus, he recommends himself in the most humble of ways, right? Verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse number 2, Paul readily admits in the same book, look, I've not attained. I'm not the guy. I've not apprehended that for which I have been apprehended for. That outside of Christ, I'm nothing. Here I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. If anybody kept the law, but, but, outside, but, but, but in that reality, I was a, it was like a pile of manure. It was garbage upon the table to be scraped to the dogs. But in Christ, He has so formed and created a work in me. And His power of His Spirit has exhorted me and compelled me and commanded me to the apostolic role uh, to, to, to such an extent that He has worked in my life that I recommend myself as humbly as I can to you as an example. You know, Paul, before any man should ever do that, you should be very conscious of your limitations in this world. That you are not perfect man before Christ. That you shouldn't come with arrogance or presumption. At the same, and at the same time, you're to be equally conscious that if, it's, if not for the grace of God, that you wouldn't be the man that you're to be at all. That the valid pattern that the valid pattern that Paul had before the believers was the work of God Himself, and Paul could not boast in it. Yet at the same time, God had created the body in such a way that models were necessary to promote um, doctrine as well as godly life. And I think that that would be something for us to well remember, right? Well remember that there is a a, a false. That within the church, I think what we rail on the most um, are these men, theologians, false teachers who put themselves up as almost godlike figures that they are to follow, right? And you probably got one popped in your mind as I mentioned it, and you just think, man, um, what a heretic. Um, yet at the same time, there's another extreme that I think can be equally dangerous to the church, and that's when no man thinks or believes that he could ever be an example to anyone. You know? somewhat of a false humility. If you go to Romans chapter number 12, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but Romans chapter number 12 calls upon a humility of mind within God's people such that they are to fulfill the role that God has given them. Right? He says, it's after that great passage of do not be conformed to this world. Verse number 3, For I say, though the grace of God is given to me, everyone who is among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. For as we as many members in one body, but all members don't have the same function. We being many, many members are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We have differing gifts according to the grace that He's given us. If that's the case, He says, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy to the proportion of our faith. If ministry or service, let us minister. He who teaches, teach. He who exhorts, exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In some sense, there is this humbleness, humility of the Apostle Paul to readily accept the position that God has given him um, to be an example to others. That actually to reject that would have been wrong for Paul. For Paul to say, in some sense, I'm not an example would have been a false humility because he truly was. He was an example that God had cultivated for the purpose of promoting um, doctrine and life 
doctrine and devotion, um, belief and practice to that body. And for Paul to say, you know, to have a false humility and say, I'm not your guy, would have actually been disobedient to Christ. God had formed him in such a fashion to promote um, his reality to the church through the Apostle Paul. And in some sense, this is the, 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 the call even to this day, you know. That God is calling men, calling women to be models and examples. And for each of us to just step back and say, I'm not the guy. We may need to examine our hearts and our lives. Maybe it is that God has given you. You know what I mean? It's just a, a word of application. Um, go ahead and jump to application because my time is waning. <laughs> just a few more minutes. That, that practical godliness is a point of application. Practical godliness generally thrives the most in a place where there are many godly examples. You know? You want to promote godliness within the church? Um, then we need some not perfect men, nor sinless men, but humble men who recognize their limitations in Christ but are leaning on Him all the evermore. And it's clear that God has cultivated godly character within them such that they carry truthfulness, honesty, gravitas, loveliness, things that are admirable, and to say to the congregation, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. You know, we need that within the congregation. We need a plurality of men. We need a plurality of godly women um, who our little ones can look to and follow after uh, insofar as they follow Christ. It's not, a, it's not to say that, you know, do everything that I do. But insofar, you know, God has blessed. And as humbly as we can say, I don't even know how to balance the two, to be honest with you sometimes. Um, but this is a reality within the congregation of the church. And we need more men to cultivate that type of character such that I can say, and I have said, many of you, follow that man. But, but, but there are going to be men whom we should be able to say, follow me. You know, if I can't say that to my boy, then I'm failing. I can't say to my sons, you know, like follow me as I follow Christ and I am a failure as a father. If I'm looking to every other man saying, boy, be like them, but don't be like me. Do what I say, yet not what I do. We're going to cultivate the utmost cynicism and skepticism within that person. Within that little boy or that little girl. Why? Because they're going to see hypocrisy. They're going to see a father who is propagating a reality that he doesn't even believe that he can, that he can fulfill. And what that is, is that is an affront to the work of Christ. We need more men who are not only thinkers, but because they're thinking, they're doing in accord with that because they've considered the weight of truth and they're, and they're, and they're plowing forward in their, in, in, their, in, their, in their imperfectness, yet in their faithfulness. And they're looking at young men along the way and they're saying, follow me. Can I, can I, I think that it's, that it's arguable that the immaturity within the church at large um, has been cultivated within the church at large because there are not faithful godly examples that we have such an individualistic type of religion, this personal relationship with Jesus that it's just between you and me or between me and Him. And don't look at me, son. You need to cultivate that with God yourself. How's He going to do that? 
Paul said, how are we going to do that? How do I know what things are true? What things are noble? What things are just? But you know how he's going to know it? He's given a picture ever before him in his father and in his mother of what the gospel does to a relationship and how they're to live that out. If not, what we're doing is being an affront to the word of God. And we're teaching our children something in opposition to the actual faith that has been delivered to the saints. Um, so I would just uh, application, you know, men, it is a proper motivation to pursue Christ, to sacrifice yourself on the altar of pleasure and your own desires in so much as for Christ for others, you know. That as a pastor, as a father, there are certain things that you should be looking at your child saying, I could do that, but it won't be profitable for my son. You know, it won't be profitable for my daughter. I need to be a faithful example. And while I think that I could probably lie next to that canyon and not roll over and fall into it, if I lead my children that close to it, I almost guarantee you that they will. That I'm going to govern my life, not only because of Christ, but because we are examples by nature. You are exampling and modeling something today. And as much as you want to say, son, don't follow me, follow someone else. There's a truth that's being proclaimed from your life. And you are an example, um, albeit a bad example. Thus, we need these examples. So Paul commends. That the promotion of true godliness and the application of truth in the life comes through verbal instruction. You've heard me say these things, but also you've seen me. You've seen my life, as he says to the elders at, uh, in the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter number 20. Um, is one of those passages in which he comes back to um, again and again. He says, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility. Paul recognized that his life carried weight. And if he was going to preach the truth, proclaim the truth, teach the truth, then his life should be in accord with that. And, and if he's doing it faithfully, he faithfully commends himself to the congregation that, that this is a model of purity. Not in an arrogant or presumptuous type of way, but in all humility, recognizing that if this is what God has called me to, then it's actually disobedient for me not to commend myself to these people. Number three, and probably the most blessed, the blessing of thoughtful obedience. The blessing of thoughtful, considerate obedience. What will be your reward? What is one of the great motivations? If a motivation was for my children, for others, what is the utmost motivation? Verse number nine, the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Verse number seven, we looked at the last time, the first promise that God gives to the faithful life I mean, it's a peace of God which passes all understanding. And that the peace of God will garrison your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That He gives us this picture of a besieged kingdom. Of one that is being protected by God Himself. How in the world is that accomplished? I would argue possibly in verse number 9. That's because the God of peace is with you. That God is with those who think, who weigh in the balances, the reality of truth. That God promises His presence among those who are faithfully obedient in endeavoring and even in their imperfectness. Christ is with them as they seek and plow out the truth of God uh, in their lives. 
that God promises, as He promised Moses in His obedience and faithfulness. When you stand before Pharaoh, I will be with you. Joshua, as he is seeking to take Canaan uh, for the glory of God, he says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. David, in Psalm chapter number 23, for the Lord is our shepherd. You know what he ends it with? That beautiful promise. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for thou art with me. And that same promise is to you today, church. It's with you. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he doth meditate, meditate, think on day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and bring forth fruit in season. His leaf will also not wither away and whatsoever he doth shall prosper. That if you want to cultivate the fruit that is here, you want to be the type of man or woman that Paul is advocating for here, um, the, the reality is, is that that only happens in the presence of God. It only happens as you walk with the Lord. That's it. That's it. Um, that through John chapter 15, through that union and communion with Him in a lively fashion, God communes with man in His obedience. So He said John 15 verse number 9. Um, and that through that obedience, God communes with that man, imparting to him that divine nature. And you changed as you're in your presence. Moses got up different on that day as he met with God. Um, David, some similar way. That, that God promises the blessing of the reality of his presence to his people as they faithfully live out um, that reality in their lives. And I had more application. Just going to give it to you very quickly. Um, number one, of course, this should be the pursuit of your life. Um, you should be intentionally cultivating that type of character by guarding your mind with things that shouldn't be there and filling them with mind, the things that should. You should be considering the truth of God's Word through that His presence is commended to you and you will be made more like Him. You will become this type of man. Number two, again, practical godliness generally uh, thrives in a place where there's many godly examples. So, I would exhort some of you men, you know, and I would exhort many of you men to look to these other men and to live a life in such a way. And that if you can't live a life in such a way to say, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a positive example to you, and then there's some things in your life that need to change so that you can. Number three, I would just leave you with this exhortation. Um, but I'm convinced that the lack of resolve to do these things, to implement practical godliness, and to live out your life um, within the context of church and home in an obedient fashion is probably one of the utmost reasons for the lack of enjoyment in most of the people of God. That the lack of resolve to implement true practical godliness, to do the things that you know to do, um, is probably one of the greatest reasons that you do not enjoy the presence of God. That I don't enjoy the presence of God. Um, I meet with so many people, you know, week after week, day after day, that are just miserable people, even Christians. Christians who have tasted and seen the Lord that, uh, seen that the Lord is good. You know? Um, to such a degree that they've been ruined by the grace of God. They can't go back to the world, yet at the same time they live so unhappily. And when you begin to navigate their lives, it's because they do not do the things that they're supposed to. 
I mean, they're not in the word daily. They're not in prayer. They're not loving their wives like Christ loved the church. They're not discipling their families. They're not sharing their faith. And most of the time, you can nail it down to some practice. And, you, and they'll look at it and they'll say, what am I doing wrong? You know, I mean, it's not that they're doing anything inherently wrong functionally. It's that they're not doing what they know that they need to do at all. They're like in Proverbs, that, that, that lazy sluggard. You know? Who knows that he is supposed to do, yet he never does. He has desire, Proverbs 21, 25 says, and it kills him. And how many people I talk to, even in my own self, experientially at times, have this desire to see God work. And yet at the same time, never lift a finger and wonder what's wrong. You know? It's kind of like the concept of desiring to build a house, yet at the same time, wondering why it never produces itself. Um, why? Because work is involved. And this is overwhelmingly what the Proverbs um, says. Proverbs 24 verse 30 speaks of the spiritual sluggard. It's grown over with nettles. Uh, Proverbs 22 says he won't move forward because of excuses that he's made in his mind. Proverbs 21 says he's killing himself with the desire, yet never willing to do anything about it. Proverbs 20, the sluggard avoids difficulty. He won't do it, so he starves. And I see so many Christians today um, who are starving because they never put into practice what they know. You know? This morning, we've all, myself included, I'm not picking on you, have came and we have received, we've heard, we know. I pray we've considered. Something is laid upon you. You know? And you've came, and it's amazing. One of the Proverbs speaks about the, um, the, the sluggard as putting his hand in the bowl, but he won't bring it to his mouth. You think, what a fool. Yet at the same time, I think, how much of a fool am I to be among the means of grace on so many Lord's days and throughout the week, and it is as if, if, if I could be described as a man who's given himself over completely to the ministry, such that, that, that he has his hand in the bowl, but how many times have I taken it out and put it in my mouth? You know, there's so many Christians out there today that, that are starving, not because there is no food, not because there is no want for desire. That's the issue, right? Not because they're not hungry and not because there's no sustenance, but because they bury their hand in the dish. But that does not fill the hungry man's belly. That true faith is a faith that is appropriated not only in the mind, but has taken root in the heart and has produced fruit such that it, it extends to the heart, to the hands, to the eyes, and to the feet. And that, one, and, and, and that the key to enjoyment in God and the release of anxieties and, wor and worries and to have true joy in your life and gentleness of spirit such that the cultivation of Christ's character is, is, is a reality in your life is to walk with Him in, in, obe in faithful obedience. Not perfectness, not sinlessness, but with the promise that God will walk with you. And when He is with you, that, that God of peace will guard you and guard your heart from all infirmities that this world would wield at. So there is this exhortation to us this morning, that this morning that you have reached your hand in the bowl, as it were. But will you truly feed on Christ? You know? 
We are here this morning. You're here next week. You were here last week. Some of you have local churches of your own. You're visiting today. Some of you are throughout the week. You read the Bible and it's just somewhat of a mechanical exercise. You've got your hand in the bowl. But today, will you feed on Christ? You know, will you recognize that now because this knowledge is upon you, you are commanded and responsible to fill your mind with these things? You know? Or will you wonder on Friday why in the world you desire to be so godly yet you've not felt joy in months? You know, get your hand out of the bowl. Feed on Christ. Resolve to obey. Walk in the path that He has set before you. And you will be like a tree planted by the water that in the most seasoned of, the most seasoned of droughts um, you will still be refreshed by God. Why? Because your roots go so deep. People will, will look at you and wonder, how in the world does he have fruit in the winter? You know, there's no reason for him to be joyful right now. You know, has that ever been said of you? There is, there is, there is this peace which passeth all the understanding. It doesn't make sense. You know why? Because he's rooted in God. He's been in his presence. He's controlled his mind. And he's a doer of the word. Again, Thomas Manton. It is not the reading man, nor the knowledgeable man. Um, He's the miserable man. He said, I'm convinced that the happiest man is the doing man. So in accord with James, let us not be hearers only. Let us be doers also of the word. Um, So I exhort you today um, to be faithful to God. To think rightly, to do. And I trust it will be the greatest blessing in your life. Because he will, he will no doubt be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you just for the time we had. Father, I know that it was long and laborious. Um, but I pray that it was profitable. Father, I pray that it was helpful. I pray that it was useful. I pray most of all, Father, that it brought you honor and glory. Father, not only the giving, but the receiving. I pray that you have just used this, this finite attempt, Father, no doubt, um, from a, an unholy man on most days. Um, and do holy things with it. Because Christ's work quickens, Father, those that, are, that, have, that have acted in faith. Father, and even apart from that, we know that in your providence you can use all things for your glory. So, so we beg you to do that now. Father, we beg you to take these two little verses. And make them a reality to our souls. Father, make Christ the pursuit of our lives, who is truly the purest, who is truly um, true, the way, the life, who is truly, Father, he which is just. Father, may he be the pursuit of our lives. And may it be known to all men um, that he is why we live, that he is why we die, Father, and he is why we rise. Because he died and he rose again. And Father, if that be the case, And therefore, let sin not reign in our mortal bodies, but yield our members to righteousness. Father, may we serve him. May we love him. Father, with all that we are and all that we have. And on those days when we don't, Father, refresh in our desires. Remind us of these truths, Father. um, That that the problem is either in our thinking or it's in our doing. That we don't do to work and to labor um, in the sense of earning our salvation. But we do because he has. And Father, may the work of our hands be the fruit of our hearts. And Father, may it be a blessing to someone else. Father, you have been such a blessing to us. And may that blessing pour out of our lives onto the lives of others, Father. 
that all the world would know that there is a God in heaven and His name is Christ. Father, we thank You for these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. You know, I always plan to end early. Never do. Pray for me in that. Um, but um, I do want to just do a couple of verses. Of, what's the number? 377. Three seventy-seven, verse one and verse six. Um, it's been a song that we've sang a couple of times, and I think it's very appropriate for um, the, the exposition just now and the exhortation. And this may be our prayer. Let us sing it just as that. May the mind.